Welcome, everyone, to another episode of AI Podcast in 26.1 Minutes. Today, we have Alex Vayner, someone who I met in the analytics circle in Atlanta. We've kept in loose contact over the years. He's a partner at PA Consultants and a really well-known data and artificial intelligence leader. Welcome, Alex. Uh, Alex, quick intro. Uh, Yeah. How'd you get to be here? (laughs) Oh, um, so, you know, I, uh, the story starts in the former Soviet Union. I grew up there. I, I, I came to America in the early 90s and uh, um, kind of fell into the, you know, the, the math realm of things because the, the Soviet math system was, um, you know, pretty advanced. So I kind of found myself being a year or two ahead of the class um, in the U.S. And it just kind of took on and, and, and sort of almost propagated and, and sort of on itself and... Uh, and I ended up studying math and computer science at University of Florida and then in grad school at Georgia Tech. And, um, you know, and when I started looking for work, um, there was no data science as a, a field yet, I guess. Uh, but people were still coding and, 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 and working with, with data, perhaps not so much of the unstructured data that we see today. And uh, so I spent the first half of the career um, as a quant um, modeler and the second half has been focused on building data science um, products and teams and functions in the corporate environment and, and worked in industry and um, in consulting um, at big places like PwC and Capgemini and consulting space, um, industry places like Equifax. I said, I think we interacted actually a little bit when I was at Equifax. I, I ran their data innovation function. And um, now I'm at PA. It's a uh, they say it's Britain's best kept secret, uh, PA Consulting. It's it's an innovation consultancy, and uh, the, the mission is bringing ingenuity to life. And uh, we work with clients across industries. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing there what I've kind of been doing the last half of my career, just, um, again, helping clients build data products and, um, and, and data capabilities. Yeah, so you've been on the build side and... Uh, presumably on the buy side. So maybe a good topic would bring up would be what is the, for our listeners, what is the difference and why does it matter? Sure. Sure. So, you know, it's the, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in a way I'm on both sides because sometimes my clients, you know, come to me and say, well, um, there's this amazing, you know, machine learning platform, right. And platform is kind of a big buzzword for me. Um, and it's a trigger word sometimes, but the question ultimately is, you know, why, you know, why should we hire a partner to build it? You know, why don't we just buy the solution? And I guess the maybe as a starting point for me to unpack this is, you know, kind of why are we here? Why is this a problem, right? Um, and I think it's kind of a consequence of, you know, number one, hey, we're in this AI revolution space, right? Um, I think within healthcare alone, the 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 projections of spend on AI is like 60 plus billion in about three, four years. The growth is 30, 40% year over year. And, you know, it's, it's really exploding. And, you know, it's, it's a problem because the space is super complex, right? From a sort of technical scientific point of view, um, it's a fairly new field. And it's exacerbated by the fact that no one agrees on jargon, right? On nomenclature. So not in academia, not in industry, not in consulting. So when you say data science, AI, machine learning, automation, RPA, robotics, 
<laughs> for some people, it means very different things. For some people, it, it's collapsed. So if you're an executive and you're you know, a chief digital officer or chief data officer and you're responsible for helping your enterprise sort of enter the 21st century when it comes to AI and you know, advanced technologies, you're, um, you know, you're, you're frustrated and it's very hard to sort of um, really understand and break things up. And it'd be surprising even now where, you know, we're at least half a decade into this revolution. I still talk to CIOs who say, so explain, Alex, what is the difference between business intelligence and artificial intelligence and automation, right? So that's still um, a very complex topic. Um, and so that's why I see executives sort of reach out and say, okay, I can try to figure this out. Um, or I can just buy this amazing platform that's, for example, um, specially built for processing legal documents and doing natural language processing on them to extract keywords that and flag them so that um, you know, we know what particular cases and instances to focus on, right? Um, so that's the that's the context for the for the conversation, I would say. Well, I, what you brought up stimulates kind of two questions for me. Um, one comment is, I mean, a law firm should probably never build that platform, right? But um, mm -hmm. I mean, on the platform side, when you talk about platforms, are you including open source projects, for example? So in this case, if I'm looking at a buy, it, it usually is not, right? Because it's usually a software company that wants to bring the, the product to market. And and you're right, the a, a law firm shouldn't, right? But that's exactly the question, right? Because you've heard this mantra, right? Every company is a technology company now, right? Um, I, I would still say law firms probably wouldn't jump on that bandwagon quite yet. But many consumer retail companies, manufacturing companies are... Um, are very much in that conversation. And especially when data become a can be a differentiator for things like predictive maintenance for a manufacturing company, right? Or, or things like customer acquisition and retention for a consumer company. Then it becomes a much more complex question of, of build versus buy. So, you know, the buy side for me has some really clear, crisp, concrete advantages. Uh, whether you are, if you're a company that's completely removed at your core from, from data and digital domain per se, like the law firm example we talked about, then it's very hard to make a case for, yeah, you should build this. You should hire the engineers, you should have them build it, and then you should maintain a smaller part of that engineering crew to, to actually run the process, right? But even if you're not a law firm, even if you are a, um, a bigger firm who perhaps wants to make a long-term investment in technology and in AI, sometimes buy is a good option. Um, a few advantages are it works fast, right? You, you, create, you, you, you start the engagement with a the company. They usually grab your data. They put it on your platform or they put it on their platform. They run it through their algorithms and their automation. Um, and you can have a solution out in the market in, in weeks. So that's a pretty strong value proposition. So in certain circumstances where you have a particular type of product you want to get to market and for competitive reasons or others, you need to get it out in, in, in weeks or maybe a month, um, this is a good option. Um, it comes with other advantages like usually if it's, let's say, a AI machine learning company focused on in, you know, the manufacturing space, right? Um, 
they'll come with existing libraries of solutions around, hey, here's you know how this works for manufacturing companies. And you know, it, even at PA, we use a company called iPredict, and they their focus is on utilities. So they can predict outages. That's a very concrete problem. Now there's a question of, you know, should a utility company build this out because that becomes a much more you know long-term competitive advantage? Should they, um, you know, buy the solution and have somebody else run it? Uh, but if 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 speed is critical, this is a good option. If leveraging existing libraries and models um, is 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 really important, um, not just the libraries that um, you'll develop. Um, that's a good option as well. So there are there are instances where buying a solution um, could work. What is your perspective on uh, the cloud in in the sense of I'm going to pay for consumption on a cloud versus buying a piece of software? So the, the cloud is, is it's almost like an adjacent part of the conversation. It's an important part, but the the, the big picture on the cloud side is um, that no matter whether you build it um, or if you buy it, it's you know in in today's world, you know, pretty much ninety percent of of, um, of the initiatives are cloud based, and I think it's moving towards a hundred. There are a few industries where it's problematic, right? Where on premise still kind of how you manage it, but um, in my experience, it's always cloud-based, and you know there are pretty much two behemoths right in the game uh, in terms of the existing cloud cloud platforms, right? Microsoft Azure and and um, AWS, and of course GCP is coming into play uh, pretty aggressively, and there are a few other smaller players as well. But in my in my experience, even the startups that develop bespoke AI solutions are I, I often, if not completely, on a cloud platform, at least have it as an option for the for their buyers. So very much proponent of that very strongly. And, you know, I think that, you know, having a, a solution that's, you know, that's not compromised by, you know, being only on premise is a smart play. I want to take us back to what you mentioned about um, manufacturing orgs as a decision-making persona. Sure. And for example, like John Deere, when I look at a tractor that's brand new and shipped to a customer now, I can't discern much physical difference from a tractor from 20 years ago. Undoubtedly, there's a lot of innovation under the hood and all that. However, it's a serious engineering org, but they're used to um, hardware. And I wonder if they underestimate the investment in maintaining software. Because, for example, if they're building the chassis and they're using 20-year-old tooling, they can do that, but that that doesn't happen with software. Yeah, you're spot on. Um, it it they may be underestimating the the investment, uh, but there's quite a bit of technology and innovation. So I'll give you an example. You know, sticking with tractors. So we we had a client that was a tire manufacturer, and one of the divisions was this. Um, um, division called the Earth Mover Division, which basically made the ginormous 20-foot, $50,000 a pop tires, right? And they were, you know, basically um, dealing with a crisis that, look, tires are a commodity, right? They, they're selling them to mining corporations that run these same tractors like John Deere, except these are big sort of um, earth movers, right? So with these ginormous wheels. And for these companies, tires are 10% of their operating costs, Right. So if um, so, the question we help them solve is how can I get more out of the tire? 
right? How do I predict when the tire is going to die? How do, what can I do to extend the life of the tire? So the technology they had, they had these sensors inside the tires. We integrated that data with weather data, with soil data, um, with pressure data, with information around sort of how many kilotons per mile um, in terms of load these, these tractors were or earth movers were carrying. And the, the cool thing about it is that it helped transform this company from a company that makes tires that are commodity that's basically being priced out by China to a company that provides inside services to these uh, mining corporations that buy these tires from them and they can tell them how to get more out of the tire, right? It can actually become a service and a product company, not just a product company. It changes the game. So the you know it's and, and I would imagine John Deere would have you know similar type of opportunities as well. So the, the, the there's this big transformation, and you're right. Um, there is a big focus on shifting some of your spend towards technology because if you don't, you'll become extinct because your competitors will do that, and they will become more sticky with their clients than you are because they'll be generating insights for them that you can't, and you'll still be making just tires, right? In the instance of these giant earth mover tires, was this a case where they constituted an in-house engineering team to provide them the data science and ML and AI to provide this so new the, category of business? Or yeah, great question. So this is the they went with the um, the build decision, the build option. We haven't talked about it, but um, they basically hired um, our firm um, to do it. We built this for them. Um, this is when I was at Capgemini. And um, then we taught the people um, how to run it, how to maintain it. We uh, productized it, and they formed a whole new division focused on consulting services for their clients. So there's a nuance around, you know, there's a, there's a huge difference in the resources and investments you need to build something versus maintaining it and just running it, right? So the, and the, it, there's a huge difference in, in the know-how, in the innovation, right? To, to build a team that knows how to create a service like that, that's, that's very complex. And to your point earlier, that's not really what, you know, a manufacturer's company's, you know, sort of core business is. But at the same time, they need to realize that the business is moving in this direction and they have to start building technology capabilities. Whether they want to declare that they're a technology company or not, um, and the question becomes tricky of, do I buy this and just they have a some startup run it, um, or do I build it? And then there's a sort of a, another split decision tree in the calculus, right, of do I build it myself? Do I hire a big team, you know, move them to wherever we are, have them work together, have them learn together, or and then fire them after I build it because I don't need 50 people to maintain a product. I need 50 people to build it. Or do I hire a, a partner um, who will build it for me. And if I'm smart and I'm setting up the engagement correctly, the partner should also be teaching me, helping me hire a team that's going to maintain the product, right? And that's the, you know, because when you buy, the, the negative side of the, the buy option we haven't talked about is you have no control over the IP, right? That's a big one, right? Always worries you. You have no control over price also, right? I will probably, if I'm a startup, I'm, I'm probably desperate for cash, right? I need you as a customer. I'm going to give you the best deal I possibly can and create a very sort of interesting incentive structure. But, you know, two years down the road, um, if I'm doing well, I will increase the price. If I'm not doing well, 
I could collapse and die. And then you have spent two years using a service which now goes away. And you know the, the, the failure rate of startups, right? Um, or this is my favorite option. A competitor buys the startup. And, and now, now you're in trouble, right? Yeah. So, and I've seen this happen. Right? It happens, um, happens all the time uh, where, you know, especially I see it a lot in the pharma space, right? Some, you know, a big firm will buy a really innovative pharma, um, um, you know, AI company that does precision medicine, right? Uh, or something like that, right? And, and, and boom, um, you know, the, the other three customers they had all of a sudden can't use them because if you're Pfizer and, you know, um, and you bought this company, you're not going to let them support, um, you know, GSK or AstraZeneca, whoever, you know, or any of the other pharma competitors. So um, it becomes a tricky situation. So, well, I, I, I'm a fan of traditional tech companies like, like these pharma companies or manufacturers buying the startups. I mean, I, I really oh, feel yeah. strongly that should be part of their strategy. Well, I've, evaluating even, I've even seen some of these places be initial investors in the startup so that when it comes to fruition, it, it makes it more appealing to um, back. Them. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, and, and, um, and I, I couldn't agree more in terms of um, it's a smart play to uh, for for the for the you know Fortune 100 or 500 companies to buy them because you know ultimately a Fortune 500 company is good at really one thing they're good at scaling. So when you give them a product that works, um, they have the customers, they have the infrastructure. They have the supply chain and distribution model. They have everything to scale this from being a $20 million product to being a $2 billion product, right? As long as it fits in within their strategy, is needed by their customers, um, and supported by their supply chain network. So it's a, it's a really smart play, you know, and it's also the reason why the, these companies are not as good, generally speaking, at incubating and, you know, innovation, right? Because the same sort of behemoth structure stifles that innovation, right? So it's it's absolutely a smart play for, for these companies to buy. Um, so it's a, it's a smart thing to buy, um, but what I meant to buy versus build is the buy the solution, not buy the company, um, versus build the solution. You can basically, effectively buying a company is a form of building the solution. You just bring the whole thing in-house and it's yours. But then you the, 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 the other negative sides go away, which is, now you own the IP because you own the company. Now you have price control because, again, <laughs> it doesn't cost you anything. You already paid it when you bought the company. So, so the negative sides of, of, of buy go away. Um, the, the positive sides of build, on the other hand, are you know the reverse, which is, hey, when you build, um, whether you do it yourself or with a partner, you have the control of the IP. You have an investment up front when you're building it, but then it you know basically flattens out, and you have a steady you know sort of cost. So there's that uptick in upfront that you don't have when you're buying a solution. They're just going to charge you a service fee, whoever the you know the company is. Here, you need to invest. You need to invest a lot if you're building it yourself. And like we talked about earlier, you might need to fire people, which is a tricky problem unless you can redirect them towards building something else quickly. Um, if you're, you know, if you're, and if you're located, I remember I had a client in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know, think about, you know, basically attracting top-notch data scientists, machine learning engineers, right, into into Grand Rapids. It's it's not it's not it's not easy. 
um, right? Data scientists, machine learning engineers want to live in cool places and in, in big cities. It's a young field, so it's filled with young people um, that are sort of dynamic. So that's got to be part of the equation. So, you know, partnering with a firm um, solves it, um, but you have to partner with the right firm and in the right way. And that's kind of what, what I mentioned earlier, which is... As long as, it's your, as long as it's your firm and my firm, it's the right answer, right? <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up, right, Brian? But um, there are basically, I, you know, I, I, I group things because I'm a mathematician and, you know, we, we, we are very black and white and structured, right? So um, the, I've, I've seen five types of firms that basically help, can help you build solutions, right? There are the strategy players, McKinsey, BCG, Bain type of companies that also have developed some solutioning, but really their strength is, is, is strategy. Um, there are the sort of, you know, traditional IT powerhouses, if you will, um, like Accenture, for example, right, um, that do this. But, you know, there you have to be mindful of the fact that the people actually building it are, are going to be very far away um, in, in India, most likely. Um, and you have less control of what's being built and how it's being built. So you have people managing the, the engagements usually in, you know, locally. Um, but there's a distance that, you know, that, that's, that's something to, to figure out. It's not necessarily bad, but it's there. Then there's, you know, a few options like the big four, obviously, the, you know, in accounting, the Deloitte, the WCs, they've all have developed these um, capabilities, right? It's where you work, Brian. It's where I worked at PwC earlier. And also very big and, and very good at this. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, the, the fourth category is these design firms, right? Um, the, you know, that, that they've also kind of become, um, you know, um, not just design, but also doing data science, building data science products, um, system solutions. So um, those are kind of the big four categories. But the fifth one, you know, you, you mentioned sort of the, the places where you and I work are these sort of other categories that are not big powerhouses, but uh, companies that combine service and product and present configurable solutions. Um, and there's a bunch of those, right? Um, I think that they've been growing, uh, but it's an interesting new dimension, you know, for, for partnerships. Yeah, for and, I, and I believe we're perfect in every way, but let's talk a bit about the hype out there. Uh, and we always like to bring up the kind of the dark side. How much of the market in AI and ML is, I don't want to call it vaporware, but just not really where it should be, either because it just didn't keep up or because it's inventing something that just isn't needed? Oh, man, it's a tough one. I, you know, I, I would say for sure more than 50%, right? It has to be because the, the, the real test is do you exist in the universe, right? That's a high number, but I, I, I appreciate it, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's true. Like, it's, you know, from my perspective, the, if the test is do you exist in three to five, five years, well, the failure rate of startups, and, you know, is, is, is we know is pretty high, right? It's above 80%. So it only it only makes sense that, it is, there's, there's, there's some hype, but you know, it's the way I think about it is the way I thought of people thought about the internet. Like if you said, was there too much hype about the internet in the nineties? Well, guess what? There was, there was a bubble and it burst right at the, at the end of the, um, at the end of the millennium. Right. But, and so you could argue, well, that internet was hype. But now if you say, did in, the internet sort of initiative or movement deliver on everything that it promised and then some, the answer is absolutely yes. Like, how can you imagine life without the internet? We can't have this conversation right now without the internet, right? Because it's it's recorded, right? So in uh, and the so I think the same thing is happening with artificial intelligence, machine learning. 
there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of companies starting up and a bunch of them failing and some of them morphing and transitioning to different types of companies. But at the end of the day, AI will deliver on its promise and it will surprise us, I'm sure, you know, and probably in many scary ways if you listen to Elon Musk and others, right? Well, I was going to ask you, and we like, we ask that question every episode pretty much. What are the scary ways sometimes? Are you, do you have any precautionary tales or fears around AI yourself personally? This is Brian's question. He he owns the franchise. I answer. I ask this question almost every episode, but I think it, it matters because you're a practitioner and you're a data person, and to hear that there's you know concerns there, I think it it matters. You know, I think that there are concerns in you know in in and I think that it's it's important to have the conversation about ethics, and it's important from, when it comes to AI. It's you know especially when it comes to to data, it's important to have the conversation about the inherent bias in the models, right? Even if we remove bias as fundamental variables, right, as the that, that go into a model, you know, we what I've learned in especially at Equifax that sometimes you discover hidden biases, right? Something that you didn't program and put into the model, but actually you found, you know, sort of after the results are out exists. To be honest, I think that this problem probably is best solved. If we bring in the, the, the three parties at play here, which and to me the three parties are, um, you know, corporate America, um, academia where the, the cutting edge of AI is being developed and government institutions which are regulating it, right? So if we are really serious about this, you know, it's got to it's gotta take the form of some, you know, some really big conversations um, at the White House level, at the, you know, the most prestigious in, you know, research institutions, you know, so we got to get, you know, MIT and Carnegie Mellon and Georgia Tech and Stanford into into this conversation. And then some, you know, Fortune 50 companies that are, you know, companies like Microsoft and um, and Google and, and um, Amazon that are investing billions into this industry and have the most to gain and lose. So um, so I agree with it. But to be honest, maybe this is a bit of a, you know, uh, me playing an ostrich and putting my head in the sand. Um, I'm personally not spending as much time thinking about that. Uh, but then every once in a while, I, you know, sort of, I pick up a, you know, a Ray Kurzweil book and I get scared, right? So, you know, he, he, he talks about sort of our intuition about the future being linear and the reality of, of the growth in technology is that it's exponential. Um, and, uh, and so um, I'm, I'm ready to be surprised, um, but um, I'm not spending a lot of my time thinking about it. Yeah. I, are, are the, Fortune 100s, the Fortune 500s, underestimating their inherent advantage in AI. And let me walk through this a little bit. Sure. So I, I, I'd read somebody offer the opinion that AI is really a different visualization of data. And we've talked about Fortune 100s and Fortune 500s and startups as kind of these um, siloed entities. Um, but... I mean, the startups really want access to those Fortune 500s, Fortune 100s data, and maybe those Fortune 100s and Fortune 500s are underestimating that they've got a huge advantage in AI because they own that data. They do. They, I mean, they, they, they do when they do, meaning <laughs> when, they ha- when they really own the data, um, they, they really control the conversation. And that you're right. That's, you know, whether it, the startups want the data but if you go try to partner with, an, with, with any academic, um, I've done that when I was at Equifax, 
The first question is, can we get access to your data? Of course, they want access for different reasons. Uh, startups want access because they want to perfect their, you know, um, their learning machines, right? That's what they're doing, machine learning. And you, to, to learn on, on something, you need the data. Academicians want it because they want to publish their papers. And again, to find correlations and, and trends, you need data uh, to analyze. Uh, but the tricky part of the question to me is that do they own the data, right? That's a whole open question now. Like, does Facebook own a lot of the data? Or do the, the customers, the users, actually own the data? I think that's a pretty open question. And I think that in the next 10 years, as companies are running, whether they're big, big corporates or startups to monetize their data assets, to productize their data assets, um, they're going to face this question. It's already being there. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the, the, the big things behind GDPR in Europe. And in, in the U.S., we have you know, similar type of initiatives, especially in California. So that's a, um, that's, a, that's a big open question for me. Hey Alex, this has been fantastic, and you're a rock star. I really believe that. And I, I know that this will be one of our best episodes ever. Um, any leave behinds regarding, you know, how people, if they need to contact you or any, you want to plug anything uh, for our audience before oh, we go? Thank you for the offer. Um, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, Alex Vayner. Um, there's not a, a lot of Alex Vayners out there. Um, and, um, feel free if you're, you know, if you're an executive with a fortune 500 company and you want someone, a soundboard to, um, to think through this, um, just ping me on LinkedIn and, uh, happy to, talk to you if you are a startup and you're looking to partner with um, you know fortune 500 companies some of them are clients of ours i'm happy to be of help as well there and um you know it's been a it's been a fun conversation thank you for having me thanks thanks for coming